You can turn in your Bible to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 8. Also want to welcome uh, all our stream song people with us here this morning. We've got a bunch of the stream song crew in the house, so what, what? Um, so, man, it's great. Uh, if you haven't been at Riverside for very long, we've, uh, we've been uh, uh, a part of a church planning movement here in the area, and we've, we've had the privilege of sending out four different churches. Stream song was the most recent one up in the Doylestown area, and, um, but we've got a bunch of them with us here today, and we're glad to have you guys and so excited about what God's doing through you guys. So, um, so uh, they didn't come just for the free food, despite what anybody said. Don't believe the hype. Um, all right, so 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Uh, we, uh, we've been going through this series in 1 Corinthians, and today is actually the last sermon in, in, in the first half of our, our Corinthians study. Then uh, for the rest of December, we're going to be walking through uh, just studies of, of the Christmas story from different, different areas of the gospel and, um, or different passages of Scripture. Um, and so this is kind of a halfway point. And man, I've really enjoyed preaching and studying 1 Corinthians, and I, I hope that you have as well. It's, it's very specific, practical, real-life advice that's married to these big, huge concepts about who God is and who we are and, and how we're meant to follow him. And so uh, if, you've, uh, if you've been following along, it opened with Paul kind of opening and greeting them and, and pumping them up and telling them, uh, you know, how valued and, and what their identity is in God. And then, and then he began to speak to them and urge them not to be divided, but to be unified because word had come to him of all these divisions within the church. And then he transitions into beginning to answer some questions that they had asked him. They sent him a letter asking him some questions, and he begins responding to those. And so for the past several weeks, we've been dealing with the first question, which is basically, what do we do about sex? Like, what, how, how do we treat that? What is, are we supposed to just avoid it altogether? Are we supposed to, we know that our culture worships it, and we know that that's wrong. How should we handle that? And so we've been looking at married life and singleness and, and how, to, how to use this gift that God has given us in the right ways. Today we turn the corner uh, into the second question that they asked, which is related to food that had been offered uh, to idols. Um, and I know a lot of you in your, in your low moments this week were, were just sitting there thinking like, ah, oh, God, I just hope the sermon is about food sacrifice to idols this week because I just, I'm struggling with this and I'm staying awake at night just thinking about it and I just need clarity on this. Um, clearly, that's not a problem that any of us have. Although, you know, there's, um, there was some gluttony probably that happened on Thursday that, that some of us are repenting of. Um, but it, so on the surface, it might seem like a, a message that maybe isn't as relevant. But, but what I found in, in reading through this, man, there are some powerful, powerful things that Paul says here uh, that relate to the way that we think about freedom, uh, the way that we think about knowledge, the way that we think about community, the way that we think about loving each other. And so uh, I promise you that if you, if you listen and if you look at what is being said in this passage, there are some incredibly relevant things uh, that will speak into your life. Uh, because this word is coming to us in one of the most individualized cultures that have ever existed, right? We are, we are so individual. We're all about, we, we elevate personal freedom over anything else in our culture, do we not? Uh, so the community has been devalued, the individual has been raised up, and it goes, it doesn't matter what end of the political spectrum you're on, right? Like, hey, nobody can tell me what to do with my guns, nobody can tell me what to do with my body, nobody can tell me, uh, you know, what I should eat or shouldn't eat, or whether I should get a tax on my soda, or if I can vape, or, you know, right? It goes on and on and on that, that we're really... Um, militant about wanting to protect our individual freedom. And, and there's a lot of good things about freedom. Um, 
But freedom is, is, is a, a right that we have to use with wisdom. And that's what this passage is going to talk about today. How do, we, how do we use the freedoms that we have with wisdom and for the blessing and the benefit of the community around us rather than just selfish individualism? So we're going to tackle all of that, um, and it's all going to flow out of this passage dealing with food sacrifice to idols. Uh, so let's, uh, let's begin just with a word of prayer, get our, get our hearts ready, and then we'll, we'll dive in. Father God, we thank you for uh, this chance to... Uh, just to open up your word and study in it and let it speak into our hearts, speak into our lives. Uh, Father God, I pray that through the, the power of your word, through the power of your truth, through the power of your presence, uh, that you would build and foster um, a, a community uh, here, that, that, that your church would be a community that models the way that you want us to live, that we would use our freedom for the benefit of others, that we would, uh, that we would think rightly about knowledge and, and love. Um, and that we would center ourselves on truth, God. Uh, bring these truths home to our heart this morning. And, and I pray, God, for each one of us that's here this morning, that you would just help us to walk out of here today knowing what the next step is that you want us to take. Whatever that is, whatever that looks like, that you would make that clear in the time that we spend together here this morning. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So uh, I gave you ample time to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. We're going to read through the, the whole chapter. It's a short chapter. And then we'll begin to break it down. We're going to look at three things here this morning that really that kind of jump out of this passage. So 1 Corinthians 8 uh, verse 1. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, and as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge. But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. And so he goes from kind of this really broad understanding to specifically answering their question in a very specific way. And we have to understand the context here. In, in Corinth, there were all these temples to all these different uh, false gods and false idols. And, and a big part of idol worship involved meat. They would bring a meat as a, an animal, as a sacrifice. The animal would be slaughtered. They would burn some of it as a burnt offering. Uh, they would use some of it as feasts. Uh, they, so they would have feasts in honor of these deities and gods. And they would invite people to come and to have these feasts. Some would go to the priest and the priestesses, but then there was extra meat that was left over, and so they would take it and they would sell it into the meat market. And so if you were eating meat in Corinth, 
there was a good chance that it might have been offered as a sacrifice at one point and then found its way to the meat market. And so uh, the Corinthians are trying to figure out, those who've come to follow Jesus are trying to say, like, okay, well, how do we, how do we navigate through this? What are, we, what are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to handle this? And it comes in light of the fact uh, that in Acts 15, if you remember, uh, Paul had been going to all these different cities, starting new churches, and a lot of the people that were coming to faith in Jesus were not from a Jewish background. They were Gentiles. And so the question came up, okay, do these people need to become Jewish in order to follow Jesus? Did they need to be circumcised, or not circumscribed, circumcised? Um, do, they need to, uh, do they need to follow all the food laws and the purity laws? Like, what, what, what needs to happen? And so uh, the council in Jerusalem basically said, hey, we see what God's working, we see through the Holy Spirit, so we're not going to put a huge burden on them. But in Acts 15, verse 28, he says, uh, for it has seemed, uh, this is the Jerusalem council, they said, for it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourself from these, you will do well. And so they had the specific instruction from the Jerusalem Council, the church there, but they're like, okay, well, I, I need a little more detail. I need, I, what exactly does that mean? What, well, what, what is that going on? And so Paul dealt with sexual immorality. We've been talking about it for the past few weeks. We've been digging into right, what, can, what constitutes sexual immorality. And now they're asking, okay, well, we know we're not supposed to eat things that have been sacrificed to idols, but what if you know, they got a good sale on meat down at the, the meat store? <laughs> can I buy that? How do I know? Um, there's a, you know, there's this skit in a show. I said the name in the first one. You have to go back and watch the tape. I'm not going to say it because part of my whole thing later is not to promote things that I wouldn't tell you to watch. And I wouldn't tell you to watch the show, but it was this skit about um, this couple goes to this restaurant and, uh, and they're like, uh, you know, is, are the chickens free range? Like, do you, know, do you know what they eat? Do you know what their diet is? And they're like, oh, yeah, actually, here's the profile. Your chicken was named Kevin. He grew up at a farm about three miles from here. Uh, and she's like, well, do you think we could go see the farm where he grew up? Right? Like, uh, digging down, and we do this in our culture, right? We want to know the supply chain. I want to know that this was fair trade. I want to know that the farmers got paired a, a, fair, way, a fair wage. I want to make sure that it's carbon neutral, that the, the, the carbon that was made is offset, right? Um, we have to track all these things down to understand where our stuff comes from. And they're saying, like, hey, do we need to do that? Do we need to understand the, the supply chain to how this meat got to my plate in order to eat it? Or can I just eat it and can I be okay with that? So it's a pretty practical question that they're asking. And so Paul begins to answer their question, and he begins in a place where, where we don't expect, right? The first thing he says has nothing to do with, with meat or, or, or sacrifices or anything. The first thing that he says is that love is greater than knowledge. He says that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And, and, and he says, in a sub-point to that, he says, hey, what you know is way less important than who knows you. What you know has, has some value, and, and he even goes so far as to say, is, hey, if you think you know something, then that shows that you really don't know anything yet. But you know what's really important? If you love God, then you are known by God. And so there's an incredible power to unlock all of this, to unlock the answer to this question, to know how to do, what to do in these, in these, these gray area situations. If you want to know the answer to that, the answer is this, that if you love God, that you are known by God. This idea of being known by God is this powerful idea in Scripture, and it's not one that we talk a lot about a lot, but, it, but, it, but it, it shows up quite often. You remember at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, as Jesus is winding down and he's teaching and he's, and he's preaching, and at the end he says, hey, there's going to be some that come to me, and they say, Lord, Lord, didn't we cast out demons, and didn't we do miracles, and didn't we do all these things uh, in your name? 
And Jesus is going to say what? He says, away from me, what? I never knew you. Now, a lot of times when I read that in my mind, I translate that into, away from me, you never knew me. You thought you knew me, but you, you created this false God in your mind and you were worshiping him, but you didn't really know who I was. But that's not what Jesus says. Doesn't, he doesn't say, away from me, you never knew me. He says, away from me, I never knew you. And it's kind of an important distinction because if, if, if being a follower of Jesus is about knowing him, then it can easily veer into a works-based pursuit, right? That our whole life is all about, I just got to know more. If I just get more knowledge, if I, just, if, I, if I know more about God, then that will guarantee that I get to go to heaven. But the problem was is that the people that knew the most about God when Jesus walked the earth were the Pharisees. They spent their whole life studying the Torah, the prophets, what we have is the Old Testament and the Bible. They knew about God more than anybody, and yet when he stood before them in the person of Jesus, they didn't know him. So there's a knowledge that doesn't lead to you actually knowing, but, but, but there's this distinction of Jesus knowing us. Uh, the famous uh, theologian J.I. Packer wrote a book called Knowing God, a really famous book about knowing God, right? That was the idea. But listen to what he says in this book about knowing God. He says, What matters supremely, therefore, is not, in the, last, in the last analysis, the fact that I know God, but the larger fact that underlies it, the fact that he knows me. I am graven on the palm of his hands. I am never out of his mind. All my knowledge of him depends on his sustained initiative in knowing me. I know him because he first knew me and continues to know me. He knows me as a friend, one who loves me, and there is no moment when his eye is off me or his attention distracted from me, and no moment, therefore, when his care falters. What's most important is not knowing God. It's, it's God knowing us. How many of you guys uh, are, are fans of It's a Wonderful Life? Anybody, any, any fans out there? Yeah. I mean, if you didn't put your hand up, I'm, it's cool, but <laughs> it's one of those movies that when I was growing up, I would always catch it like kind of midway through. It feels like you're, you're watching the holidays. It's on TV a lot, and you'll catch it kind of in the middle. They're at the dance or, or you know, uh, different scenes in it. And, um, and so it took a long time before I actually sat down and watched the movie from start to finish. And when I did, I came to realize how incredible of a film it is. Um, and it actually came on the TV last night as I was, I was supposed to be finishing up on my sermon. And, uh, <laughs> and so I'm watching, and in the very beginning, something really fascinating happens. It begins with these prayers that are being lifted up for this guy, George Bailey, and all these people are praying for him. And uh, suddenly, uh, God is represented by these stars in the sky. God is talking to the angels. He's like, he's like, man, we're getting a lot of prayers for this George Bailey. I guess we've got to do something for this guy. And so they call in this, this, uh, this Clarence, who's kind of a bumbling angel. And they're like, Clarence, we need you to go help him. And he's like, all right, I'm on. And he's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Before you go, you have to know him. You have to know who he is before you can go help him. And so Clarence, they, they lay out the story. He comes to understand George Bailey. And, and, you know, spoiler alerts out the window. This was made in the 1940s. So if you haven't seen it yet, that's, that's on you, right? I'm, now, if you know about Frozen 2, don't tell me anything because I haven't seen it yet, right? But we're still in the window. Um, but, but George lives a life of self-sacrifice and service. He, he misses out on a lot of great things to help others. He's always thinking about his community and, and helping his family and helping other people. And he reaches the point where he just hits a real low and he, he feels like his life isn't worth living anymore. And so Clarence comes and shows him what the world would look like if he had never been born. And so he goes through this whole thing. 
and, and when he comes back and he's given a second chance to go back into uh, his life, he's just elated. He's just filled with joy, right? He's, he's running through the town, like, wow! Like, in the only the way that Jimmy Stewart can do it, right? And he's so happy. But here's the fascinating thing. When he looked at all the things that happened in his life, he could have came out of that and said, I knew it. Everything depended on me. All along, all those things, all those choices I made, it all depended on me. And so now the pressure is even greater. I can't screw up. I've got to be there for everyone. I've got to hold it all together. But that's not what he does. He doesn't come out of that thinking like, man, everything depends on me. He comes out of that feeling elated and freed. And he runs back into his home and he's like, I'm going to jail. We're bankrupt, right? Like, who cares? Merry Christmas. He's so happy. Why? Because, because in seeing all this thing, what was communicated to him is, God saw every one of those choices he made. From the time he was a little boy and he jumped in the river to save his little brother and he lost his hearing to the, to the, the opportunities that he missed for others to, to the times that he couldn't do things uh, to, because he was trying to build his community. And, and he realized that all of those things mattered and God saw every one of them. And God said, your life matters. You're valued. What you do matters. And to know that was such a freeing thing for him that no matter what the future held, whether he was going to go to jail, whether he was going to go bankrupt, whether they were going to lose their home, it didn't matter anymore. But he, he knew that God knew him. And he knew that his life had meaning and purpose. And that's what Paul's telling to us here. He's saying you're so concerned with trying to prove to everybody how much knowledge you have. If, if, if God knows you, if you love God and God knows you, you don't have to prove anything to anyone. You don't have to prove your self-worth. You don't have to prove your value. You don't walk into a room craving attention, craving affirmation. You don't put unreasonable pressure on your spouse or your family or your parents or your kids to, to love you and honor you and recognize you. You're free. Because the only relationship that, that really, really ultimately matters is with God, and, and he tells you that he knows you and he loves you. He sees your weakness, he sees your brokenness, he sees your failings, he sees your temptations, and he loves you anyways. He knew about all those things when he chose you, and he called you into a relationship, and he wants you to be with him. He wants to spend time. He doesn't tolerate you. He doesn't just kind of accept you. He loves you. And when you know that about God, that changes everything in the way that you live. That changes the way that you enter every situation in your life. And so if the question is, should I eat food that's been offered to an idol? You can come to it and say, like, well, yeah, maybe, maybe not. I mean, is it really that important? God knows me. <laughs> he, he, knows, he knows who I am. And so I'm going to seek him, and I'm going to try and do right by him. But, but ultimately, I know that my worth is with him, not in these choices that I'm making or this knowledge that I profess to have. So the first question I would ask you this morning is just this. Do, do you know... <laughs> that God knows you? Are you resting in this incredible comforting truth that the creator of the universe knows you and he sees everything about you and he loves you? It, it's the kind of depth you can't even, even in the best earthly relationship, there's always this, this back fear of saying like, yeah, they, they love me, but th do they really know me? Right? If they actually knew everything there was to know about me, every thought that I have, every, every, every failing, everything that I've ever done, if that was all laid out, would that person still love me or do they just love a projected image of who they think I am? 
right? So even in our most intimate relationships, we're always a little bit afraid that if we were exposed, that, that maybe they wouldn't love us. And that's where we go back to the garden, right? Where Adam and Eve were naked and they were not ashamed. And that's the kind of relationship that God wants us to have with him. He sees it all. There's nothing we can hide, and yet he still loves us. And that's the kind of love that's unbreakable. Do you know that love? Are you living in that love today? If not, it's available to you. God makes it available to you. Through Jesus, he says, I love you, and I want you to be in that relationship with me, and I want you to come to me. And if, and if you've never put your faith in him, I want to encourage you, today's the day to do that. And it will free you like you, you can't believe. If you're here and you're a follower of Jesus and you're like, man, that sounds amazing, that's true, but I'm not living in that freedom, I would, I would, I would ask you are, you, are you on this pursuit of knowing God? Have you, have you bought into the idea that if I just know more, if I, if I just do one more Bible study, if I just one more, it's good to know God. Knowing God is not a bad thing, right? Knowing God's a great thing and we should pursue him. But, but we're not trying to attain something we don't already have. If you've come into a relationship with him, he knows you, he loves you, he's accepted you, he's forgiven you, you have freedom, you have peace, and it frees you to pursue a knowledge of him. You want to know him, but it's not out of fear, it's out of love. Sometimes we just need to be reminded of that. Now, the second thing he says is a counterbalance to this, right? He says, he says love is greater than knowledge, but knowledge is still important. Truth matters. He's not saying, hey, just, just love everybody. Don't worry about the truth, like, just blur out all the borders, like just love each other. That's all that matters. He says, he says, love is greater than knowledge, but truth is significant. Particularly related to the fact that there is one God. He says, uh, he says, for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Now, he says something kind of fascinating that, that has a depth to it. And if, and if you felt like you had a lot of knowledge, he says essentially this. He says, hey, listen, there is one God. There is God the Father, and there is the Lord Jesus Christ. One God, and he talks about two persons, and we know that the Trinity is actually three persons, and we see that all throughout Scripture, that, that it's one God existing in three persons. Now, if you think you have full knowledge and you fully understand that, uh, next week we'll give you the mic and you can come up and explain it to everybody, right? It's a reminder that, that God is more vast than we could ever wrap our mind around. We can understand it in part. We can, we can wrap our minds around the, 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 the one true God exists in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. But, but who can claim to really know that? But it does tell us something really significant. It says that God, the one God, has existed in community for all of eternity. That the three persons of God have existed in perfect, loving glorifying, self-sacrificing community for one another for all time. He says this is significant to know. So, so it is true what you're saying in your claim that there, there's only one God, that these idols don't exist, they're not real, so it doesn't matter if food was sacrificed to them because they, don't, they aren't real and they don't have any power. That's true. He says, you're right. Now, in our, our culture today, we don't wrestle with like, hey, is there like a bunch of different gods or is there only one God? In Western culture, most people have really ascribed to the idea and they understand there's, there's one God. But what people will say today is, well, there's one God, but people know him by different names. And so, so some people take this path and some people take this path and some people find him through Islam and some people find him through uh, Buddhism and some people find him through Christianity. And, uh, but it's all the same. It's all different paths to the one true God. And, and the Bible says clearly, no, that's not the case. Uh, that, that if our salvation 
comes through Jesus. If Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and life, and no one comes to the Father except by me, that that is a knowledge that there is, there is one ultimate truth. But this isn't meant to be uh, the knowledge that puffs up, that makes us feel better than everyone. This is meant to be uh, a truth of love that's meant to build up. It's meant to make us reach out to our neighbors and say, hey, hey, I know that you have a yearning, a desire for God, and you're pursuing him in a certain way, but, but, but let me tell you who Jesus is. Let me tell you about the truth that's been revealed. Truth is significant, but it's truth in love. And so once we have our idea, our mind wrapped around these things, then we are free to be a blessing. We have this right of freedom. We, have, we, we live in freedom, but, but our freedom is not to be used selfishly. It's meant to be a blessing to the community in which we live. He says, basically, food is inconsequential. It doesn't make you closer to God by eating food, sacrifice to idols, or, or not to eat food. He's, it doesn't really matter. Food is food. It, there's no spiritual component to whether you do it or don't do it in and of itself. Uh, but, but the Corinthians were essentially saying, hey, so should we just, meet, just eat meat anyways and not worry about it? Or should we just not eat meat at all? And essentially, he says, he says it's based on the situation. And so he goes into some, uh, we're going to jump into this in January. He goes into some specific examples about freedom and giving up your freedom and things. But in chapter 10, he kind of wraps up the argument that he's making and gives some more specific instructions. So we're going to jump ahead here just for a second to 1 Corinthians 10, verses 23 to 33. And in 1 Corinthians 10, he says this. He says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to a dinner and you're disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. I mean, he says, okay, and, and I love that he does this throughout this letter. He gets real practical. He says, okay, practically, if you go to the meat market and it doesn't say special idle discount, right, <laughs> they're recently sacrificed, then you can go ahead and buy it and you can eat it and your conscience can be clean. If, if you get invited uh, for dinner over at someone's house and you sit down uh, and they serve you meat, you can eat the meat and your conscience can be clean. You don't have to worry about whether it was or wasn't offered to an item. But if they say to you, hey, this was, I got a great deal on this because it was, it was up at the, uh, the temple and they were, they were getting a big discount, right? Because it's about to turn rancid, right? Yeah, in that case, you'd be like, yeah, you know, I, I think I'm going to pass on that. And I would probably say that anyways, right? Um, if they tell you that it's offered to, to an idol, he says, then you should do it. And not because now it's defiling you, but because of their conscience. Because if they reveal that and they know that you're a Christian and they know that you know it was sacrificed and then they see you eat it, then that could have an impact on their conscience. And so you should choose to lay down your freedom, even though you have freedom, um, for their sake, for the sake of their conscience. Because some of these people had come out of, of a deep idolatrous culture and they for years had gone to these temples and were offered these sacrifices. And so for them to eat that would be participating once and again in something that they had left behind. 
Now, as I said at the beginning, eating food offered to idols is not an issue for us, but, but what are some of the culturally relevant places where this comes in? Um, well, one is alcohol, right? The church, uh, different Christians take different stances on alcohol, right? There's some. I went to a Christian school called Messiah College, and, and when I was there, I had to sign a community covenant to be a part of the school. And, and one of the things that I said is that I wouldn't smoke or I wouldn't drink, even though by the time I was a senior, I was old enough to do both legally. Uh, but they asked us to sign a community covenant to say that we wouldn't do that, to lay down our rights to be a part of that community. Some, some Christian communities um, really uh, in, encourage, and some are very hard-lined about this. Others have a very open, and uh, they say, hey, uh, meet, meet us at the bar, and we're going to talk about Scripture around, around the bar, right? Uh, there, there's different approaches. So which one is right? Well, the answer is, what does your, your conscience tell you, first of all, right? If, if you're convicted that it's wrong, and you choose to do it, then that is sin. That's one of the things that comes out clearly in this passage, right? That, that if you have a conviction that something is sin, and you choose to do it, then for you it is sin. The other thing that we've got to take into account is, is what impact is this going to have on my brothers and sisters? Uh, for some people, alcohol is not a big deal. They can have a drink or two. They enjoy it. Uh, they can walk away. It's not a problem. For some people, they have, they have a family history of alcoholism. Or, they, or they've had something in their past that has been really damaging connected to alcohol. And for them, it's, it's a problem. For some people, they can't just have one drink. If they have one, it's going to turn into a dozen. For some people, alcohol is a functional savior. Where they say, hey, I'm, I'm celebrating. Let's drink. I'm sad. Let's drink. Um, you know, I'm going to Thanksgiving dinner with my family. Let me bring a six-pack with me because I can't get through without it. Right? It's, it's the thing that you, you lean into right? No matter what you need. It's instead of saying where you should say, Jesus, I need your help to get through this, you shortcut it and say, let me just go get a drink, right? Um, and so if that's where you're at, it's better and it's wiser for you to lay that down. If, if you're going out to, to hang out with your friend who just got, uh, just got, got clean coming out of a recovery program, you're not going to take them down to the bar and get a drink, right? So it's, it's wisdom. It's using the freedom that we have. I, I honestly believe that there is freedom in the Bible that I don't think drinking is a sin. It says drink, but don't be drunk, right? But that's up for you to work out in your own situation, and it's also up for you uh, to be wise in how you do it. If you're, if you're posting pictures all the time on, on social media of you out at the bar getting loose with some friends, What's that communicating to the non-Christians that are looking at your life? What's that communicating to the Christians that are in your life? Is it possible leading them into sin? And so we have to be wise in how we handle this. I know some Christians, we feel like we're on a mission to prove that Christians can be cool. I can eat what you eat, and I can drink what you drink, and I can smoke what you smoke, and I can watch what you watch, and, and I can say what you say, and I can still be a Christian. Well, there's limits to that, right? That we're not supposed to look just like the world to prove that Christians are cool. And there's not a hard line. I'm not going to hand out you the list of do's and don'ts, right? That, that it's, it, Jesus intentionally makes it a conscience thing that we're supposed to seek him and that we're supposed, to, uh, we're supposed to, to, to respond to our conscience, to the guiding of the Holy Spirit. Another one is, is what we watch, what we consume in media, right? What TV shows you watch, what, uh, what movies you watch. Should Christians only watch, you know, rated G? Is it PG? Is it PG-13? Is it all right? Like, what's okay, right? There's, there's not a hard and fast rule, but, but he said all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. And particularly when you're, uh, you know, as a Christian, if you're on social media saying, oh, man, I love this show. It's so great. This is the best show. And somebody goes and watches it, and it's filled with, uh, with, with sex and violence and nudity and, and profanity and all these things that, that run counter to what we believe in, um, is that beneficial to them? 
So, so we constantly have to be, and trust me, like I'm, I'm right here with you. I've, I've done sermon examples earlier this morning of, show, <laughs> of shows that I would never tell somebody to watch because it has all kinds of things, that, and I shouldn't have been watching it, right? And guys, if I can speak openly to you, like, uh, man, guys, we've got to be careful because guys tend to be much more visual than ladies. And so movies that, that just have a lot of gratuitous uh, sex and nudity and stuff, that, that's not good for our souls. It's just not. Ladies, it's not good for you either, right? But guys, sometimes we need a little more help, right? <laughs> you got to be careful what, what you're allowing in into, into your eyes. And, and, and you got to be careful about what it's communicating, right? For, the, for those of you that are parents here, you, you don't exercise every freedom that you have because you're trying to set an example for your kids. And you don't want your kids to do things that would be okay for you, but, but you don't want them to engage in. And, and so, so there's this, this idea of using our freedom to build community. And it's so countercultural because, because freedom is put on such a pedestal that if I can do it, it's almost like if I can do it, I should do it. If I have the ability to do it, then I should do it because that's exercising my freedom and that's the most me that I can be. And the Bible says something totally different. The Bible says, hey, what is good? What is uplifting? What is beneficial to my community? What brings glory to God? Whatever you do, bring glory to God through it. And if you do that then you're doing the right thing. So I would ask you, is, is there something, you know, uh, how are you using your freedom? Is there something this morning that God's convicting you of saying like, hey, you know what, I know I have the freedom to do that. I know that doing that doesn't separate me from God or not doing that doesn't, doesn't make me closer to him, but, but I need to use my freedom better. I'm not setting the right example for, for both the Christians and the non-Christians who are observing my life. My family, my kids, my, my, my neighbors, my parents, right? Like, um, are you taking your freedom seriously? Because he lays a pretty high burden here. He says, he says, hey, this is a person that Jesus died to redeem. And so if you're pushing them back towards sin, you're sinning against Christ, ultimately. It circles back to that, that whole thing of being known by God. If, if you're known by God, you don't have to prove anything by what you do or what you consume. You don't have to prove it to yourself. You don't have to prove it to anybody else. Think about Jesus, right? Is there anyone who ever had more right to freedom than Jesus? <laughs> I mean, he made it all. It was all his. And he came and he subjected himself uh, to be misunderstood, to be criticized, to be considered a failure in many people's eyes. Uh, ultimately to be beaten and tortured and hung on a cross. And, and, and it wasn't the nails that held him to the cross. He could have got down at any moment when he wanted to. Can you imagine the, the, the strength that it took <laughs> to be crucified knowing that at any moment he could have called down angels from heaven and he could have been released, but he, for, he, he forwent his freedom and it was love that held him to the cross so that, so that you and I could be forgiven. And so we need to live in light of that example. And it says, it says in Scripture that we, we, we die to ourselves and now we live for Christ. And so we use our freedom in the same way that Jesus used his freedom. So yeah, you're free to do lots of things. But are you using your freedom in line with the example that Jesus Christ has given you? Would somebody look at your life and say, like, wow, I, the way you use your freedom reminds me of the way that Jesus used his freedom to bless and benefit and save and redeem me. Let's pray.